0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Welcome, everybody. Uh, First and foremost, we have to uh, graciously thank everybody that showed up today with the crazy blizzard, if you live anywhere outside of New York. No, but the truth is, it's terrible weather, and it's very difficult to come over here, uh, you know, at, at a cold winter night. It's a tremendous, tremendous merit for all of you that, that came on a, on a night that's, that's so difficult to come. us tonight, we are learning, Leofuash Elagitel Abatzila, and for to Leah Batzara. also, as a reminder, the person that always reminds me to remind, to, mention about, you know, to everyone's welcome, uh, is not here for the past like two weeks and I haven't said it. This is how it shows you how incompetent I am without you know, people will be like, It's like every week I need to say it, but yet every week I don't. So um to everyone's all women are welcome to join us every Thursday night at BJX at sixteen oh one Quentin Road at Thursdays at eight PM, sometimes seven thirty for breakfast party and, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you guys have, like, a stash of, like, wine or beer, like, somewhere on the bottom over here. And, uh, um, cause, like, there, there has been a, you know, there, there was a few times that I came over here that there was some, uh, you know, going on. Um, but it's not so bad. I have a class that um, people prepare a different way. Um, they get very spiritual. Um, I don't know how you, uh, you know, say that. So, um, it's kind of used to that, that type thing. Well... They play the flute, very, very practicing their breathing, you know, relaxation techniques. They, they do a lot of, uh, you know, things. But, okay, so tonight is, is. oh, you guys are lucky that you came tonight. I'm lucky that I came tonight. But you guys are also lucky that you came tonight. You guys are also lucky that I came tonight. Wow, so everyone's lucky. All right, and good night. All right, <laughs> thanks for coming. Um There is such an amazing lesson, or lessons, that we're going to learn tonight, on Rachel Imeinu, and hopefully we'll be able to branch it off into other uh, lessons as well. What shook me so hard is that the things that I'm about to say is not something new that I've learned. I've learned this mitrashim for years, I've known this for years, but this year when I was reviewing it and I was learning it, It hit me at a different angle, and and answered a question that's such a difficult question to answer, and it like made it so clear that you know it's it's it literally like when whenever I'm I'm like learning this, I'm like uh, it's like it's like really mind blowing. So all I'm trying to say is get ready to get your mind blown. Um, All right, so now the we we have to try to understand this this you know concept of Rachel Imenu. Rachel Menuh, we know was one of the matrix of our foremothers, uh, if you can call them like that. The Very interesting part about it is that Let's say even her death is commemorated more than any of the other ima'ot. We know that her, that her yurt side, her uh, death is on 11th of Cheshvan. We also know that she's also buried in a place where the other matriarchs are not buried. The other ima'ot are buried in the Marat She is buried in, on the road, uh, you know, to Bet Lechem. So now, the, you know, we have to try to understand why was the purpose of that? Why did God do that? Is it beneficial? There's crazy, crazy amounts of, of, of lessons to be learned over here. So now, let's go back and let's give a brief intro, introduction about what the story was when Rachel Menu, you know, came into the picture. So we know that Yaakov Avinu went to look for a wife. He went to look for a wife. Uh, this is not something that you should try nowadays, but back then it was pretty popular. You find your wife near a well, okay? If you want to try it nowadays, then that's the reason, huh? you have to find a well. Um uh you know, if you're going near well to find your wife, then please move to a non-third world country um and you know enjoy us in our technologically advanced uh you know society. But Yaakovino went to Haran. He went to Haran. Haran was where his ancestors, where his forefathers, his father's family lived, and he went to find a wife. And We see this in Genesis, in chapter 29. Here is where Rachel is introduced into the picture. She was tending her father's sheep, which is another whole question. Why was she tending? Why was a woman tending a sheep? Why wasn't why wasn't Leah over there? But in any case, the story starts that she's tending her father's sheep, and it says over there, that Rachel was very, very beautiful. She had, you know, she was very beautiful, and in contrast, the same pasuk says that Leah. It says something very interesting. Her eyes were very weak, were very tender. Now. Uh, You know, if you know how to read people, and you don't have to be like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, you just lost $50, you're emotionally disturbed, uh, you know, and uh, you're depressed, which pretty much, you know, is like one in five people in America. But, uh, you know, in any case, you, you go over there, when you're looking at a person, you can see a lot about the person's eyes. When you, they say the eyes are the windows to the soul. Literally, it's eyes. I don't know if people realize this, but the neshama is right behind the eyes. The eyes are literally the window of the soul. It says, "As wise were, ve- la's eyes were very tender, or very weak." What does it mean that they were weak? What were they weak for? So we all know that the very obvious, you know, interpretation and explanation is that she was constantly crying. Why was she crying? Because she knew that she had a sister, and Yaakov had a brother. There were two boys and two girls, and they knew that. These two boys were going to marry these two girls. The older one, which was Le'ah, was going to marry the older boy, which was Esav. The younger one, Rachel, was going to marry the younger one, which is Yaakov. Now, Le'ah knew that Esav was not the best kid in Bach. You know, he had a reputation that preceded it. And she didn't want to marry him. And she kept on crying and crying and crying. And this is why her eyes were weak. The eyes were tender, because she cried non-stop, begging and praying to God, please God, don't let me marry Esav. So, the... Yaakov gets over there and he sees Rachel. Rachel is very beautiful, you know, and, and we said that the eyes are very weak. And he goes over to Lavan and he says, listen to Lavan, he says, I want to marry the young, your younger daughter, Rachel. And Lavan says, yeah, not a problem. The swindler of a person that he is. He says, you want to marry her? Um, work for me for seven years. And then you know, and then you can marry her. By the way, well, this is a woman. But if a man goes to a woman and say, "Hey, you know, I want to hold, you know, your wife, you know, in wedding," and the wife, the husband, and the you know, father was like, "Yeah, no problem. Just work for me for seven years." Nowadays and age, you know, might be a good idea to just ask. You know, is this normal? Like, should this be done? But back then, this was a normal thing. So Yaakov says, "Not a problem. I'll work for her for seven years." He works for her for seven years now. Everybody knew that Levan was a slippery slope type of guy. He was one of those sleazy guys, you know, with a gel back here, you know, had his collars outside, you know, like over here. You know, always chewing something in his mouth, had a ring on one finger, a toothpick in the other one. You know, hey, hey, listen, buddy, buddy, you know, I don't know why I described Italian mafia. But with any case, um, he goes and everybody knew that he was a sleazy guy. So... La Yaakov and Rachel figure there's something fishy going on over here, something fishy might happen. Let's make a secret code over here. So there's no tricks, there's no tricks that's going going around. So Yaakov and and Rachel they go and they make a secret sign to make sure that Lavan doesn't play any games. <coughs> Seven years pass by, it comes for the wedding night. The wedding night comes, and surprise, surprise, Lavan the trickster decides to make a pull a trick. And he swaps. Instead of Rachel, he puts Leah under the um, under the, the canopy, under the wedding. Now, Rachel felt bad and that, you know, her, her sister is going to get embarrassed because it's going to find out over here that she wasn't really the right one. She felt bad. She gave her the secret code. So this way she's not going to get embarrassed and Yaakov is going to marry Leah. Now, in the morning, Yaakov wakes up and he says, Hey, <laughs> well, what's going on over here? You know, he goes to Lavan and says, hey, this is not what I signed up for. You gave me Leah. I, was, I worked for Rachel. So what did answers, He says, oh, no, it doesn't work like that way over here. It works over here. First you you marry off the older girl, and then you marry off the younger girl. So that's how we do it over here. So Yaakov goes and says, uh, Levan goes to Yaakov and says, hey, listen, he says, all is not lost. Work for me another seven years, and then I'll give you, you know, I'll give you Rachel. Right, fool me once, shame on, what is it, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, Fool me one, shame on you, pull me twice, shame on me, pull me three times, shame on we. We don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Okay. I said it wrong, all of them. On purpose. Okay. So um, the you know, so uh, so Yaakov says fine, I'll work for you another seven years. So he says he didn't have to work, he 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 finished a Sheva Bachad over there, worked you know, went a week, then he married a and then he worked for Lavan another another seven years. Now, Rachel's life was not easy from the beginning. You know, she didn't... Her sister married her husband, or, you know, apparently was supposed to be her husband. And not only that, she had a hard time with children. Finally, that she did have a child, she had Yosef. About seven, eight years later, she had another child, Binyamin. And then when they entered Eretz Yisrael, Binyamin, you know, when when she gave birth to Binyamin, she passed away during child labor, childbirth. And... Not only that is she was buried in the path. She wasn't buried in Mount Mount Ebal. She was buried on the path to uh, you know in in the beginning of Elitzur. So now the question that we have to ask us over here is Rachel gave up a lot for Leah. She gave up her husband. She gave her the secret code. She made sure that she's not going to get embarrassed so finally she ends up marrying Yaakov but after all that what's her reward that she not only did she have to share her husband with her sister and her maidservants but not only that she also didn't get to even you know be with him in the next world like well obviously not in the next world but she wasn't buried next to him Leah was buried next to him Rachel yeah, was not buried next to him you know this is her reward she sacrificed so much and this is what she got you ever had that question like what's going on over here this should be this is her reward so I want to share with you a true story that happened in World War II in Romania uh, there was a person by the name of Shalom Ozer Braun. And he used to work in antiques and Judaica, you know, business. And he had 10 children, and he was very, very, very strict when it comes to religion. Like, you don't mess around with him when it comes to religion. Especially when it comes to chinuch. The education of his children, when it comes to religion, the best schools, only the best... There's like, there's no outside influence. Everything was very strict to code. And... It, the time came, the Nazis entered uh, Romania, and lo and behold, they, they, put, they set up shop right next door to his house. He had a very nice big house. Right next to his house, they set up shop. He realized, this is not going to fly. He went, he packed up, and he moved to the far end of town to a little shack. And, you know, the word was going out, what's happening to the, what was going on with the Nazis and what Germany was doing, and they realized that people need to leave. And this came when to this person, Shalom O'Iza Shalom, his sister-in-law, got you know, started understanding what the situation was, that she calls her brother, her brother, and was his name, was Shmuel, he was brothers with this person that we're, we're, we're talking about, the main character, if we may. <laughs> so, she calls her husband, and, and she says, listen, he says, uh, she was pregnant at a time, and they had one child, and he says, listen, you gotta get out of you gotta get out of Romania. You gotta get out of here. No one's gonna survive. Take our son, our son's name was David. Take our son and go to El-Tisal. Just get out, whatever you can. She wasn't able to leave because she was pregnant, but he says you have got to leave. So <coughs> she convinced him that he went, and he decided that he's gonna try to take as much family members as he possibly can. He was able to convince another brother of his by the name of Noach that he was also able, willing to go and buy and purchase a ticket, and they went and they purchased three tickets. One for the father, one for the son, and one for the brother. Now meanwhile, the, you know, this brother who purchased the ticket goes over to the brother with the ten kids and says, listen, he says, it's not going good over here. Come with us. Come with us. You're able to leave. Let us leave right now. So the guy, the guy was just strictly, he says, where are you going to go? You're going to go to America? America's terrible education for the children. He says, what's going to be with them? They're going to, they're going to end up going to be like, you know, non-religious. God forbid. Absolutely not. He says, where else are you going to take them? To Israel? Israel wasn't that better. Enlightenment also reached over there. He says, nothing doing. We're staying right here. And he tried to convince him. He wasn't able to. The sister-in-law heard that uh, this brother was not interested. She says, "Let me talk to him." She goes over and she talks to him. She says, "Listen, I understand that you don't want to because of chinuch." She says, "At least be like Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu split up his camp. This way, at least part of it will survive. At least if you go send, you know, some of your children over here, some of your children here, at least you have something to survive." She says, "At least send two of your children with my husband. Let them at least survive." So he was thinking about her. Logic was made sense, and she kept on saying, saying, "said Listen, don't worry about it. My my husband's going to take care of the chena. He's going to make sure that they have the top level, you know, education that they need." So he decided, fine. After long, you know, discussion, he says, "Fine, I'll send my two oldest." He had two twins. He had an older boy by the name of Eliyahu and a girl by the name of Chaya. He says, "They they're going to be able to go with you." They went and they purchased tickets for them as well. The week before they were to depart on the ship. They, uh, um, the mother of the ten children decided that, you know, she didn't want her, you know, her two oldest children to go into Israel looking like refugees, which they were. Says, let me go and get dressed to buy them expensive clothes, let them dress them nice. So They look, when they come into, Ar-Zhuzab, when they come into this as a refugee, they'll look like royalty and hopefully they'll be treated like royalty. So she goes and she purchases, purchases them a new suit, a new cl- new set of clothing, new shoes. And they decide they're gonna wear it the first Shabbat before they go. They're, they're gonna wear it as, you know, the first time they wear things on Shabbat. Which is always a good idea, just FYI. If you buy something new, always wear it for the first time on Shabbat. Always a good thing. So. They go, and they're wearing the new clothes on Shabbat, and the oldest son, Eliyahu, is coming, walking back from shul on Shabbat day. And all of a sudden, there's bombing that's happening in their village, in their town. There's shells that's flying everywhere. Everybody's scrambling, running for coverage. And he's so nervous over there. He's, you know, he's sitting over there, and he's running for coverage. Meanwhile, he has to run in the mud, and the dirt, and he's thinking, so I had brand new shoes. He says, why well, am going to ruin my shoes? He takes off his shoes, and he's running barefoot, you know, dodging from place to place, until finally he makes it home. His mother sees him walking home. She hugs him, she kisses him, she starts crying. She says, look at this miracle. Look at this unbelievable miracle. We never had such a bombing over here. Bow Hashem, that you made it. The father was standing in the corner over there, very stern face, very strict. And she goes over to him, she says, Do you see this miracle? He says, I didn't see any miracle. I saw a complete and utter desecration of Shabbat. He says, my son in my, in front of my own eyes, he took off his shoes and he was carrying on Shabbat. He says, that's a, you know how to carry on Shabbat. He says, if this is my son, he's gonna do this under my roof. He says, what is he gonna do in America? What is he gonna do in Israel? He says, absolutely not. He's not leaving anywhere. My son and my daughter are staying right here with me. And the sister-in-law went over to them and says, listen, you know, you know, this bombing, This you can't, he tried to talk some sentence. He's nothing doing. He was extremely strict. Some people may call it fanatic. He's like, this, he's staying right here. And, and my, my daughter's staying right here, nothing doing. So, <coughs> the date came that, uh, you know, they were supposed to leave on the ship. It was December 11, 1941. They, they uh, you know, the brother, his son, and the other brothers, so uh, uh David, and Shmuel, all departed the ship called Struma. They departed the ship in the port of Romania, and they bid their family farewell. And they realized that this is the last time that they're going to see their family. They realized it's not going to be good, and they kept on begging, please, send your, you have tickets for this, I'm send them. The guy says, I'm nothing doing. So, they get on the ship, and, uh, you know, the, the boat is traveling, it got stuck in the Black Sea. There was uh, you know, the, the boat was, you know, had some malfunction in its, you know, weak and old engine, and it got stuck in the, ba- in the Black Sea. They, they were near Istanbul, they were near Turkey, so Turkey, you know, sent out a tugboat, took the boat, and they brought it to the shore. They went and they stood over there. There's about 700 people on this boat. They stood. They went over there and they were working on fixing on the ship. Meanwhile, they didn't know where you know where to send these. These were refugees, and Turkey said, "Listen, we're not accepting these 700 refugees." And they said, "If anybody's willing to accept the refugees, that's fine." Until then, they were under quarantine and they had to stay in this small, cramped place until they uh, until uh, you know some sort of country offered to accept them. This this was and for about 10 weeks they stayed like this. And uh, the the Jewish agencies even tried to go at that point in time. Israel was owned by by um, by uh, England, so they tried the British the British you know government to say, "Listen, allow them to come to Israel, give them the visas, give them the right passage that they should be able to go into Israel, and we'll take them." And the British government, British mandate, said, no, "No, no, that's not happening." And they went from place to place. No one wanted to accept them. Finally, came the point in time that that you know they said, "Listen, if no one's going to accept you, says so we're sending you back to Romania." The Jews on, ber- on board, they, when they heard that, they went, and they went to destroy the engine. They said, there's no way we're going back to the death camps. We, we just escaped there. We're not going back. Anywhere but there. And they broke the engine. And uh, the, Tur- the Turkish government was thinking what they were going to do. They said, listen, you, 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 know, you think you're going to hurt us? They went, they took a tugboat, they put it in international waters, and they just left the boat drifting over there. He says, whatever happens, happens. This happened on February 23rd, 1942. The... <coughs> On February 24, one day later, after they were put in the middle of the, of the ocean, on February 24, 1942, the Struma was hit by a submarine, by a Russian submarine, by a torpedo, and all 700 people on that there was there was 103 children, 272 women, and 393 men all perished. Among them, you know, on them, uh, including you know the brother, the two brothers, and the son that was on that boat. There was one survivor by the name of David Stolar who went and told over what happened. <coughs> Somehow, somehow, against all odds, this, you know, Shalom Ozebron, and his wife and ten children, survived the war. They survived the war in Romania, and in 1950, they decided they're going to Eretz Yisrael. They went to Eretz Yisrael, and they went to vi- to visit the... Uh, the the Sadr Viznitz Rebbe, and they asked him, and he said one of the most important things, as always, was an education for his children. He says, "Where is the best place that I could live that my my children's education will be the the best?" And he says, "Go to Kfarata. It's a place in Israel." And he went, and they you know they they moved to Kfarata. The first of the ten children to get married was the the oldest twin, which was the girl by the name of Chaya. She was going, she was she got married. Who did she get engaged to? The son of this Rabbi, the son of the Rabbi of uh, the Sadr Viznitz uh, Rebbe. And who did he, this, this, uh, you know, son ended up becoming later the, the rabbi of the Sarah Visions. His name was Rabbi Eliezer Hager. And, uh, she, you know, they went on to become the, the, you know, the leading, you know, people of the, that Hasidic, uh, you know, group. When we look, we see, very nice ending. You know, you see this, beautiful, amazing. They listened to God. You see what happened over here? You have to understand the concept of the story. <clears throat> you think in the middle of the story, but look at this, this guy's crazy. This guy's a fanatic. What is he doing? Go save your children. He says, no, I am going to do something for God. And guess what? When you do something for God, you don't get hurt. You don't lose out if you listen to God. He uh-huh, says, okay, fine. And look at this, unbelievable, all ten children survived. And you know how what a rarity that is in the Holocaust? All ten children, the entire fam- family survived to, you know, to the end. That's very nice and very dandy. That's what we would expect to see when you sacrifice so much for God. Let's look at the story of Rachel. Rachel sacrificed everything. She sacrificed her husband. She sacrificed, you know, she, sa- she didn't even want her sister to get embarrassed. What did she gain? She had two out of the twelve tribes. And then she went and she didn't even get to be buried next to her husband. She didn't even get to be married next to her husband. This is her reward? Where is it? I thought you don't... This is the strongest question that I get, and I get it often. It's a very difficult question to answer. I don't understand. He says, you, you always say, and every rabbi always says, if you do something for God, you don't get hurt. You don't get hurt. Not hurt. You don't get hurt. I, look at Rachel. Could you have a better question than Rachel? Rachel said, I gave everything. I gave everything up. And if this is what I get, this is my reward, she could have asked that. There are many people that said, listen, I go and I pray and I pray and I pray, and the person passed away. And they go, I pray, I pray and I pray, and I don't have a shidduch. And let's say there was, you know, sometimes, you know, you get engaged, and uh, it doesn't work out. And, you know, so the girl or the guy, whoever breaks off the engagement, thinks, you know what, this guy's crazy, psychopath. And guess what? He's not, he was a great guy. He ended up becoming a multimillionaire. He says, God, what happened? He says, I prayed and this is what you give me, this is a reward. People pray and there's no panasah. People pray and the person dies. People pray and there's no shiddu. What's going on over here? Where is the point of it all? This is such a powerful question and this is such a difficult question to answer. And can it be a bigger question that Rachel could ask in God? Rachel said, I gave away everything. I didn't even want her to be embarrassed. She didn't have to do that. I didn't want her to be embarrassed. And this is my reward. So let's look a little bit deeper into the story. <coughs> is in Genesis chapter 48 verse 8 that when Yosef and Yaakov are discussing our talking Yaakov goes and tells Yosef he says listen I want to tell you why your mother was, was buried in the road and she wasn't buried you know, you know in the Maat Machpelah like everybody else is going to be and he says, this is because God told me to do this. This is Rashid. He says, God told me to do this. Why? Because there's going to come a time when the Jewish people are going to be exiled from their land. And they're going to pass by the tomb of Rachel. They're going to pass by the gravesite of Rachel. And they're going to go and they're going to pray over there. And in her merit, they're going to go and they're going to be saved and they're going to be able to return into their, into, uh, into the, back into the Holy Land. Now that's very nice and dandy, but let's take, let's take this a whole lot deeper. Let's look at this. It. There's a Midrash in Echa. In introduction to, to Echa, there's a, there's a Midrash that goes like this. And says that God sends Yirmiyahu to the patriarchs. He Send them to Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Moshe. And says, listen, go to them. Let them wake up. The Jewish people are going to go through bad things. Let them go mourn for the Jewish people. Let them pray for the Jewish people. So, <clears throat> he goes to Avraham. And he goes to Avraham, you know, Abraham gets up there and he starts begging to God and he says, God, please, he says, I was willing to sacrifice my son. Do you know what that means? Do you know what the test that Avraham had? Abraham, he went and he preached to everybody else, do not sacrifice your child," Because back then, child, you know, like, you know, human sacrifice was a huge thing. And Abraham says, like, this is not what God wants. God does not want you to sacrifice your children to God. And then God tells him, hey, your test is sacrifice your child to God. You know what a test that is? And God and Abraham says to God, I didn't ask any questions. I went and I sacrificed my son. My son that you promised me that I'm going to have generations and generations come. I went and I sacrificed him. In, my mer- in that marriage, please save the children of Israel. Sell- save them from exile. God did not answer. Comes Yitzchak. And Yitzchak says to God, he says, I was on the altar. I was willing to sacrifice myself for you. I got over there and I was doing it willingly and happily. In this merit, please save the children of Israel from exile. God did not even respond. Comes Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Avinu. He goes and he says, God, I was willing to sacrifice myself when I encountered Esav. And Esav wanted to destroy me. I was willing to sacrifice myself that my children shouldn't get hurt. Now that my children are going and they're going to be led to the slaughterhouse. He says, in this merit, please, I I sacrificed myself. I was willing to give myself up for them. Please don't let them die. God did not answer. Moshe Rabbeinu comes. going to be someone bigger. Moshe Rabbeinu He calls God, "I'm the loyal shepherd." He says, "I did everything. Everything. I went and I. And not only that, you didn't let me go into El Yisrael. You didn't let me see my fruits of my labor. The, the everything that I tried so hard, I wasn't able to go into Eretz Yisrael." He says, "Now that the Jews got into exile, you're gonna send them out, and you're gonna be part of the exile, and you want me to mourn with that? You didn't even give me part in this merit. Please, God, please go and please save the Jewish people." God did not respond. And I want to share with you, and I'm going to say this part in Hebrew, because this is so important. This is the Midrash goes on. <clears throat> it says, sha'a Rachel. And that time, Rachel jumped. Meaning, she wasn't summoned to the party. She jumped on herself. She came out on herself. And she goes and she says, Listen, she says, Yaakov worked for me for seven years. And when the seven years were up, they wanted to make a switch for my sister. And she says, it was very hard. It says, It was very difficult. You think, of course, everything is easy for her. Of course, you know, she'll do anything. She says, no, no, no. This is what she says, the Midrash brings down over there. It was very, very difficult for me to give up my husband. You know how difficult it was? And not only that, I had an intent to double-cross my father. I gave the secret code to Yaakov. I knew that, I figured something like this was going to happen. I didn't want it to happen. And I was, it was very, very difficult. And then what? But then I had mercy on my sister. I had mercy on her. I says, look what she's going to be—so much embarrassing. And then I heard some a crazy halachut. I heard from Zehaya Wallace. Listen to this crazy halachut. Fast forward a little bit, for, you know, forward. Who then, last child, goes and finds dudaim? Dudaim? a Question: What you say? Franklin says you say uh, there's a, a, a I forgot the other you know um, interpretation. There's different ideas of what uh, of what it was. Well, it was a certain plant that sort of helps you conceive. Think of it like a medicinal type of a plant. So, at that point in time, Leah had Yehuda, but she didn't have any more children. So, Uven said, "Listen, I found this plant. Let me give it to my mother. Maybe my mother will be able to go and conceive again." Rachel saw that he has this plant, and she said, at this point, she didn't have any children yet. So she goes and she says to Leah, "says Please, can you give me your Dudaim? Can you give me today? Maybe I'll be able to get pregnant." You know what Leah answered her? I answered her, he says, not only you stole my husband, you want to steal my plants? And uh, you know what Rachel answered? Rachel answered, okay, listen, you know, the, you know, the, the four mothers, the four abba ima'ot, they had their own tent. And, uh, you, know, you know, Yaakov had a different night with each of the, with each of the uh, ima'ot. At that time, it was Rachel's turn. Rachel said, listen, I'll, let's make a trade. He says, it's my turn tonight, you could take Yaakov, give me the Dudaim.' And they made the switch. But now the question is, why did Achal do that? Leah said, not only you stole my husband, now you also are going to steal my Dudaim. She could have been, listen sister. Literally. Listen. He says, I stole your husband? He was my husband! I gave him to you! I gave him your coat. I gave him the goat. Are you kidding me? I, you stole it from me! But she didn't say that. You understand, Leah. I'm telling you something, I don't know if you ever heard this before. Leah never knew that Rachel was supposed to marry Yaakov. She always thought that it was meant for her. Now the question is, why? How? How? We all said in the beginning that we knew that Leah was supposed to marry Yaakov, Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel. What did all of a sudden Le'ah get in her mind that, that she was supposed to marry Yaakov? How did she not even see this? And the answer is Le'ah witnessed the entire, the entire event when it transpired in the beginning. What happened was Yaakov comes to Lavan. Lavan sees Yaakov. He realized his father, when he came to find his wife, he came with ten camels full of money. You know, and he, you know Lavan goes and he sees Yaakov and he's like, He's like, where's your where, Where's your camels? He's like, you got a driver, uh, you know, picking him up in the back. He's like, no, I, I don't have any camels. He's like, oh no, you don't have any camels? He gives a big hug. And he pats him down. He says, maybe he's got some money on him. Maybe he's got the bills, you know, strapped onto him like the drug smoker. smuggler. Hey, what's going on over here? Maybe he has over here. Nothing. He goes and he searches even in his mouth. Maybe he's hiding diamonds in his mouth. And Yaakov says, hey listen buddy. He says, I don't got any money. He says, Alifas took everything from me. So he says, you know, he says, what's going on? Why is he taking for you? He says, Asaph was trying to kill me and Leah was watching this entire thing he says why is Esau your brother trying to kill you he says because I took his bechoah I bought his bechoah from him Leah heard and says wait a minute you bought his bechoah that means that now you're the firstborn if you're the firstborn that means I'm supposed to marry you yes my prayers have been answered she's like this is so in her eyes she was always, she was supposed to marry, she was supposed to marry Yaakov. Rachel is the intruder that came in afterwards and be like, hey, can I also come in on this part? You know, like, you know, what's going on over here? All of a sudden, Rachel is joining, you know, the, you know, the biggest tzaddik in the generation. It was supposed to be just her. So in her mind, and Rachel could have, could have set her, you know, set the facts straight, but she didn't. She kept her mouth shut. She didn't say anything. So, wow. <clears throat> she goes over to, this is what, going back to Amidrash. Ya, Avraham Avinu came in front of God nothing doing Yitzchak came in front of God nothing doing Yaakov Moshe nothing doing Rachel comes in and says God look what I gave up he says not only I gave it up I didn't she never didn't even knew about it he says in this merit please please save the Jewish people you know what God answered God answers. says to him for you for you I'm going to get up he didn't answer any of the other ones he says for you I'm getting up and I'm going to return the Jewish people to their place you realize, <coughs> out of all the mothers, Mama Rachel. How many songs do we have of Mama Rachel? Uh, cry for us again. You, know, you have all the popular songs... All, you know, about Mama... What about Mama Lea? Mama Bella, Mama Zopa? You know, there's all... Where, where's the rest of it? Why is it Mama Rachel's everything? Because she's the mother that goes and prays for us. She has such a power of prayer that no one else has. You have hundreds of thousands of people visit her grave yearly. You don't understand what goes on. There is a whole army base going on. If you guys ever see over there, there is huge... Things that you could go over there, there's bulletproof process. Why is... Out of all the graves, everyone's going to Mama Rachel. Why don't we have that same type of thing? There's so many other graves we could mention over there. Why only Rachel? Because there's a power in Rachel. There's something going on over here. <coughs> it says a pasuk in Jeremiah, Chapter 31, verse 14. <coughs> it says, Kol nishma. A voice is heard on high. A high, you know, like, they're talking about, like, really, really high. What is it? Rachel is crying on her children. She's crying and she's crying. And you know what God answers her? God answers her, and he says, restrain your voice, your, your, your voice, restrain your tears. I want to read it for you, this pasuk over here. It says over here, restrain, refrain yourself from crying. There is reward, there is reward for you. It says, refrain. He says, stop crying. Let me share with you something from Rabbi Tzadik of Lublin. Ratzal goes and, and says like this. And says, let's say Rachel did not give the secret code to Leah. Let's say she didn't give it to him. Would she would have been at, at fault? So listen. says, so you know, somebody was going to get embarrassed. Maybe she was required by Halacha to go and prevent her sister from getting embarrassed. Says so Ratzal no. She did not have to go and give the secret code. You know whose fault would have been if her sister would have been embarrassed? Levan, the father. It wasn't her fault. She went... Above and beyond what she needed to. And she went and she wanted to give the (coughs) coat. Not only that. This is what she goes to God. She says, God, just like I went. And I had compassion on my sister. Please have compassion on the Jewish nation. But says Nachman and he said the Ramban. Something so unbelievable that I couldn't even believe this. When It's something so crazy. You don't even know what a sacrifice. (coughs) We know. The halacha is that a man is not allowed to marry two sisters. Yaakov married two sisters. Rachel and I married two sisters. How is he going to be able to do that? The answer is, is that the forefathers, they kept the entire Torah. We're only in El Israel. That's where they kept the entire Torah. Outside of, the, outside of the, they kept the Shabbat Mitzvahs, and Enoch that they were required to. But in El Israel, they kept the entire Torah. That is why when Yaakov went into El Tisrael, that's when Rachel died. Now, says the Ramban, says Nachmanides, and he says <coughs> that Rachel was a Neviah. She was a prophet. She knew what was going to happen. She realized when she agreed to allow her sister to go and take and marry her husband first, meaning that she was the first wife, she knew she's not going to be able to go into El Tisad with Yaakov. And not only that, she knew through nivuah that she wasn't going to go and be buried next to Yaakov. You know what she gave up? She didn't give up just having, you know, another, you know, sheared, you know, wife with her, another with her husband. She gave up both in over here and her burial space forever she, until the resurrection of the dead. She was not going to be buried up for next to next to Yaakov. She gave up both the spiritual and the physical. You know what that is? It says in the sp- in the physical, give up fine, but she gave up so much. She says you, do you understand the sacrifice that Rachel Imenu gave? She gave up everything. Why? To not embarrass her sister. I was mind blown by this. Can you, I, can you even begin to understand this? This is why it says in Yemiah chapter 35, verse 15. It says in Jeremiah, God tells, didn't listen to anybody else. For you, Rachel, for you, Mama Rachel, I am going to listen. <coughs> we said all this is what? It's all based on the fact that Rachel was not jealous. She wasn't jealous. She says, I'm not jealous of my sister. Please, God, don't be jealous of the Jewish people. They were serving idols. They were serving other gods. Don't be jealous. Obvious question. If you read the Torah, it says there straight out in Genesis, chapter 30, verse 1, that Tikanah Rachel, Rachel was jealous of her sister. It says there straight out she's jealous. What's going on? You look at Rashi over there, it says, why was Rachel jealous on her sister? What type of jealousy are we referring to over here? It says over there, she was jealous on her good deeds. He says, Amra ulai. maybe, maybe perhaps, that she is the Leah is more righteous than me, and that's why, lebanim. you know, she was righteous than me, that's why she has children, and I am not righteous enough, and that's why I didn't have any children. She was jealous on her spiritual growth of her sister. What's the al You're allowed to be jealous on somebody? You're not. But what about being jealous for somebody on the spiritual growth? That you're allowed to. And now that's a good thing. It's called as kinat sofrim. You're allowed to be jealous of someone's spiritual growth because that would make you want to grow also. You might make her want to grow as well. Now what was she jealous about? Listen to this fascinating idea. <coughs> Rachel, Leah. Leah named her first son Ruven. Her second son Shimon. Her, se- her third son Levi. Her fourth son she named Yehuda. And this time I'm going to thank God. Why did she say thank you to God? Why was she had so, by the fourth son? Because she made a very, very simple calculation. There are four wives. There are supposed to be 12 tribes. You take 12. You divide it by four. Each, each mother you think would have three children. She had four children. She says, God, you're giving me more than everybody else. Now I'm going to thank you. And that's why she named her son Yehuda. By the way, just FYI, you know what we're referred to as Yehudim. Why are we referred to as Yehudim, as Jews? Why are we not referred to as Ruvenim, Shimonim? You know, Yisacharim? Why are we we referred to as Yehudim? Because it is incumbent and it is important on a Jewish person to have a Karat all. You have to be grateful. If you're not a grateful person, look into you. There's something wrong with you. Spiritually, there's something going on over there. You have to, as a Jew, you need to be grateful. That Yehuda, we come from Yehudim. So now... (coughs) says Rachel sees this. Rachel sees that, look at the level that my sister was able to reach. She was so grateful. She had such a karat to, talk to God. She named her son Yudad in the gratitude. She says, how jealous am I? I wish I could have that karat to talk. I wish I could feel that grateful, that thankful, that close to God. That's what she was jealous for. Now why did she want all the children? Was she bored? There was nothing for her to do. That's why she wanted the children. She wanted to be the Shvatim. She wanted to be the mother of the tribes, of the future tribes of Israel. She got kind of answered. She's known as Rachel Imenu. Mama Rachel. She's the one. Rachel Mevaka Al she She's the one that cries on their children. You know what? She's the one who has the power to go and save not just Yosef and Banyamin's tribes. She has the power to save the entire Jewish nation. There's a story that I read in Rabbi Benjamin Przansky's book. He reads something, he says a story about Rabbi Han which was with the Rosh Hashiva of Mir Yeshiva And the Rosh Hashiva would go every Rosh Chodesh to go and pray in the kever, in the gravesite of Rachel Imenu. And he would go there, and he would sit there, and he would cry. People came to him for problems and problems, and he would cry. He says, you know, there's only so much when someone hears all the Jew- problems of the Jewish people that it gets to them, you know, it gets them, and eventually you just break down. And you cry to God, God, please help the Jewish people. Every rosh chodesh, from Chaim Shum Levitz hears the, the problems of all the Jewish people, from depression to this one, to pan to shalom bayit, to the children, to no children. The, uh, the problems that he had, he went and he broke down every rosh chodesh. <coughs> and he had a very interesting custom. After he finished praying, he would back up, and then he would say, "Vain, Mama Rachel, vain. Cry, Mama Rachel, cry." And then he would depart. So the the student that would be driving there, you know, finally built up the cart and asked him. He says, "Rebbe," he says, "Rabbi," he says, "I have a question." It says, it says over there in the pasuk, it says that God told, God told Achari Menu. It says, kolach mi Don't cry anymore, He says. There's gonna be reward for your, for your thing. He says, don't cry anymore. He, he, God tells Rachel, don't cry. Says a student to the rabbi, he says, how could you tell, yeaah, how could you tell Rachel Imenu to cry if God himself tells Rachel Imenu not to cry? You know what the rabbi answered him? The rabbi answered him, he says, for a father to tell his daughter to stop crying, that he could do. But a son could always tell his mother to cry. And he says, "Yeah, mommy, cry, cry for the entire Jewish nation. Who has the power to do this? Rachel Imenu has the power to do this, and only Rachel Imenu, because of all that she went and she sacrificed. We think she lost out. She didn't get to go next to Yaakov. She didn't get to go. Look at she. She had to sh- She didn't lose out. She had the power. She is the mother of all the Jewish nation. She is the one that you go and you cry, and she is the one that has the power to answer to answer these uh, to, to answer your request." There's a story that is told, another you know true story. <clears throat> there was a person in Israel who had 13 kids, lives in a two-bedroom apartment. Him, he you know learned in a call. He made a very, very meager salary. His wife was a ganana. She went and she uh, took care of a kindergarten you know group, kids. And together with the salary, they were able to cover their rent for two be- two bedrooms with 13 kids. Try to picture that, two-bedroom apartment with 13 kids. They had enough money for rent, vegetables. And utility during the week and some bread, and a Shabbat chicken. That's all they covered. When the fifth child got married, you know, the fa- you know, father, which he knew already, he had to go and he had to raise money to pay for the wedding. Weddings are not, a, you know, not cheap. I'm <clears throat> not even talking about Gorski weddings. i not even going to go there. This is regular weddings <laughs> for regular people are expensive. Um, I'm not talking ones when you have to take a mortgage, you know, from the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, to, you know, to do to, to that. So, <clears throat> he goes and, who, no one likes to go and collect money. Nobody. And he goes and he takes a flight to JFK. He realizes he has to go and he collects. He lands at JFK. He hitches a ride to Bar Park. He goes to a place called Shomel Shabbat. Shomel Shabbat is, uh, it's, uh, or better yet, the Shemesh Shabbos, um, that is a true way to say it, is uh, you know, a place in Bar Park, uh, on 13th Avenue and 53rd Street. It's a meager building that has, you know if you'd be able to see the merits of certain buildings, that would be higher than the Freedom Tower. <coughs> But it looks like a very simple beat. This building has minyanim around the clock, nonstop. There is like a hole in the wall there. There's a minyan over there. There's like you, you go over there. There's a, there's a. And not only that, they have also food for people that are coming. So he goes over there. He prays mincha. He eats a little bit snack with the food that they provide, and he goes around and he starts collecting in in the shul over there. And he gets a few dollars. He gets, you know, he even got a few, you know, quarters, even a few dimes. And he's sitting over there, he's counting his change afterwards, and he's like, are you kidding me? He's like, this is what I have to do. So one of the people saw him over there, and he says, listen, he says, if you want the big bucks, he says, you're not going to get it over here. you got to go to people's houses. you got to go to people's businesses. So he says, yeah, you know, I know, I've been here before. So fine, he goes and he finds somebody, you know, the kind heart that gives him a little room in the basement. He sleeps over there in the basement. The next morning he wakes up he goes to school learns a little bit after David, and then he begins his route. He decides he's going to take a he's going to take a bus to Williamsburg and he gets off at Bedford Gardens housing project. It's a place that the people do not have a lot of money but they have big hearts. And, he, and just FYI, people that have big money don't always give the big checks. It's the people with the big hearts that give the big checks. So <clears throat> he goes he's done you know he's done this uh, you know this uh, you know this r- route before. And he stops, starts by the first building, starts knocking on the doors. And he gives a whole spiel. By the way, if anybody ever comes to you and says you this, you have to understand, this is his thousandth time that he's doing it today. Hey, he's collecting for his family, and his family has a, you know, and his daughter is getting married, it's the fifth child, you know, yada, yada, yada. yada. Even if you can't give them anything, at least give them a kind word. So he goes and he starts knocking from door to door. Some people answer, some people don't. Some people, they say, come back later, my husband's not home. Some people open the door make him wait out there for five minutes. Finally, after the five minutes, they give him four quarters or a dollar, you know, which is the same thing if you know math. Right, he goes and he gives, they give him a few change and this is how he makes his money. Every so often, you find a righteous person that actually treats him like a human being and says, hey listen, would you like to come in? Maybe I could give you something to drink, something to eat. And he accepts it and he moves on. After... A rigorous, you know, seven hours of doing this. He opens up and he starts counting what he made that day. He made $273. He says, if I have to do that, it's going to take me months to, to, you know, to to make the money to be able to, you know, pay off my, you know, the, the wedding. And he's sitting over there, you know, he made some appointments. He had some wealthy people that he came previous here, So he made some appointments, to, you know, go see them later at night. <clears throat> and he's thinking, should I, you know, should I go? And he says, you know what, let me try a little bit more. He goes, he, he knocks at, on a few more doors. No one answer. He knocks on the fourth door after he was about to give up and the little boy opens up the door and he's about to say something and the boy doesn't say a word, takes an envelope, shoves it in his in his chest and then closes the door. And he holds it. He's like, he's taking it back. He holds the envelope. He opens it up and he sees a lot of hundreds in there. And he's like, ching You know, he starts counting. It's $2,500 bills in there. And he's like you know, he's like, wait. and he's like, you know, uh, he's like, no, something doesn't feel right. He was a righteous person, you know, he's, You he know, sits alone to all day, knocks on the door again. The boy answers, and he says, uh, is your father or mother home? And he says, yeah. And he says, can you, uh, can I speak to them? And he says, my father's on the phone now. He says, can you do me a favor? Can you ask if your father, is this envelope for me? So the boy says, okay. He runs back, he comes back, and he says, yeah, it's for you. And he's like, okay. And the boy just closes the door. And the guy's thinking, he's like, mm, something doesn't sound right. Knocks again on the door. The boy opens up and he says, can you please ask your father one more time, is this envelope for me? So the boy starts laughing. He runs back to his father. He comes back a few seconds later. He says, yeah, my father says it's for you and it's every, you know, he says the right amount is in there. And he says, okay. And the, door, the boy closes the door again. And he's like, he's like, ah, mm. He knocks on the door one more time. And the boy opens up there and he's like, yes and he says, can you do me a favor he says, can you just make sure is this really for me this little kid is like 7 years old he runs back to his father and he comes back yes, my father said no, it's for you and he closes the door, he says, listen, you know God, I tried, you know, and he starts walking down the stairs, he gets halfway down the stairs and he's like thinking, he's like you know, it's a modest apartment, He got $2,500 from this, you know, thing, something doesn't right something doesn't feel right over here he goes back up and he knocks on the door again This time the father opens up, a skinny, you know, you little, you know, guy, sheep guy with white shirt, black pants, opens up the door and he says, yes, can I help you? He says, listen, I was here a minute ago and your son gave me this envelope and he shows the envelope. The second that he, the father sees the envelope, his face went from regular color to like pale white, to purple, to red, to every color of the rainbow and He says, I wasn't sure if this is for me. And the guy says, oh my gosh, you don't understand. He says, I borrowed $2,500 from somebody. He called me up a while ago and he said he's coming to pick it up. I thought it was him. I sent my son to give him the, the money that I owed him back. He says, you don't know. Oh my gosh. And the guy says, listen, I figured something was wrong. And he gives him the money back. He says, listen, you know, I'm collecting for my daughter's wedding and so on and so forth. And the guy says, yeah, he pulls out of his pocket a $5 bill and he hands it to him. And he says, thank you very much. And he closed the door. The guy, Is, you know, he's like, he says, I just saved this guy $2,500 and he gives me a $5 bill. And he's like, God, this is a test. He's like, this is a test. And, you know, he's taking himself to a safe zone, his place, quiet place. And he's like, you know what, God, it's a safe. It's a, it's a test. Fine. Not a problem. He goes and he says, okay, it is what it is. He's walking down the stairs. He gets a phone call. It's his appointment at nine o'clock at night with one of his wealthy, you know, people that he was gonna, you know, hoping to get a big check from. He picks up the phone, the guy says, listen, it was a secretary, the secretary says, listen, you know, he, the person's, you know, held up, he's delayed, you're gonna have to come a little bit later. He says, what else is new? Of course. You know, not a problem. Please, by all means, I'll, you know, uh, whatever, whenever he's able to see me. He hangs up the phone, he says, what am I gonna do now? I have to hang out a little bit longer, let me try another building. He goes to another building, knocks on the first few doors, gets a few meager change, finally knocks on the door that says over there, 4F, knocks on over there. <clears throat> An old man opens up the door with gray beard, and he looks at him, and the old man suddenly has a huge smile on his face, grabs him, brings him inside, and starts singing like it's pulling. He starts singing and dancing with his, with his collector. And you, you ever, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but <clears throat> imagine this situation. You're sober, and then you have a drunk friend that comes along. And the drunk friend is so happy. And they're like, woo! And all of a sudden, you're, you're completely sober. And you're like, woo! woo! You know, you feel happy also. It's contagious. And all of a sudden, he's dancing. He had a, such a stressful day. And this guy is singing and dancing. And he's singing and dancing with him. And, you know, eventually he's like, you know, and after a few minutes of them dancing in a circle, Imagine you see that scenario. This scenario would be weird unless it's two Jews doing it. Once it's two Jews, especially if the two Jews have long pants and they have a white yarmulke with a red letter, black letter. But even any Jew, you're sitting and see them dancing in the street, you're like, okay, whatever, it's cool, you know, it's not out of the ordinary, especially if you've been in Israel, especially in Stas. So, finally, the collector goes and says, why are we dancing? You know? um, So the guy says, God was so great to me today. And he says, cool, you know? um, He says, you don't understand, he says, you know, he says, I'm a retired, the old man telling him, he says, I'm retired, I invest money in stocks. He says, I invested, you know, quite a large sum of money in a stock, and people thought I was going crazy, that I, I'm going just throwing away money, because there's nothing doing with the stock. Today, the stock went public. He says, I made $50,000 profit today on the stock. And then he says, I mean, and then he started taking his hand and they started dancing together again. And, and, you know, they started dancing. And meanwhile, after a few minutes dancing, the guy is looking at his watch and he says, listen, I'm. you know, I'd love to dance with you, but I got to go. I have an appointment. So, you know, but he never even mentioned to him that he's a collector. He says they, were, they were just dancing the whole time. So he says, what are you, an insurance broker or something? He says, no, I'm collecting for, you know, my, uh, you know, he says his daughter is getting married. He says his daughter is going. And he says, oh, OK. He takes out, a, you know, an envelope from his pocket and hands it to him. It's a very fat envelope. He opens it up. There's hundreds, fifties, twenties, and fives over there. And he looks at it and he's like, you know, he's starting to shake. He's like, he's like, what's this? He says, that's for you. He says, "He says, all of it? And he's like, yeah, all of it. He says, $5,000. He says, I made $50,000. I have to give him a sell, 10%. I told God, if this, if I make money on this, the first collector that comes to my door, I'm giving him everything, the entire 10%. He says, you're the first person. It's all yours. The guy starts bawling, crying. He says, listen, it's a good thing. You know, I gave you $5,000. No reason to cry. He says, you don't understand. He says, you don't understand what a test I had 20 minutes ago. He says, I just gave up $2,500. I gave up $2,500. I thought I'd never see it. He says, not even a half hour goes by and I make double that. He said, this is what happens. You do something good, you don't get harmed. You go and you listen to God. You become religious. You become this. You're not going to lose out. You're not going to lose out. The problem is, is that you're never gonna lose out, that's a promise. But sometimes, when do you see the promise? You could see it in a half hour. You could see it in five years, like the story we saw earlier about the Ishelim Brown, that he went to Israel, and then he, then you saw that, that he, or sometimes you see it like a khali menu, That you have to wait until the next the next life, the next world. And the next world that you'll see that you don't lose out. But one thing is for sure: you go and you pray for a shidduch. You pray for someone to pass away. You, you, you pray for someone not to pass away. You pray. It depends which uh, part of the, you know, if you're in the mafia, you're probably not here. But if you are listening to this class, um, please stop killing people. Okay. But besides that, if you're going and you're praying that somebody should go and should live and shouldn't pass away, and the person passed away, you're praying for a and you don't get the shidduch. You're praying for anything. You say, God, what's the point of it all? It's obviously not working. You don't care about me. You don't care about anything. I'm just dull and he throw away the towel. We learned the lesson from Rachel Menu: never give up. You don't know what power it has in the prayer that you have, in the sacrifice that you give, it's not going to get lost. You are going to get rewarded. Yes, says God to There's going to be reward. Sometimes we'll see it soon. Sometimes we won't see it until after 120. You pray for somebody, the hardest thing that you could possibly do is you pray and you pray and you pray. Someone's sick, a dear friend, a dear relative, somebody very dear to you, you pray and they pass away. And they pass away, and then what do you know? There's no end. Well, what could be good? We don't know. I don't know. Nobody could tell you what the reason is. But one thing is for sure, that prayer did not go for waste. That prayer could have helped the children cope. That prayer could have helped the grandchildren, the husband, you know, it could help her in the next world. Whatever it is, it could help. We don't know, but nothing, nothing goes to waste. And if you do something good, you will for sure, 100% be rewarded for it. (coughs) You know, when Yaakov met Rachel for the first time, you know what he did? It says up there. And he went, he saw Rachel, and he cried. Why did he cry? Because he saw, says Rashi, that she's not going to be buried with him. He saw in Ruach he saw in Ivoi, he saw in prophecy. Why is she not going to be buried with him? Because she's going to go and she's going to be crying for her descendants and for both of their descendants. They're going to be in exile, and Yaakov joined her in her prayers. And he went, and he also cried. He says he knew what Rachel is getting into. He knew what he's doing, and he went, and he also cried. Now we see something so fascinating. Let me take you another small journey on Yosef. Yosef. We see in Genesis chapter forty-five, verse one, Yosef is meeting his brothers, and he's about to reveal himself that he is Joseph, and that you know his lost, you know long-lost brother to the to the twelve tribes. And he goes, and the pasuk says over there. It says, "V'lo Khali Yosef le'tapek." And he wasn't able to hold himself in anymore. And you know what he told all of his Egyptian guards? Get everybody out. Why did he tell that everybody out? Says Rashi, he did not want his brothers to be embarrassed in front of the Egyptian guards because his brothers are the ones that sold them to the, you know, to the Ishmaelim, to the Arabs, and which sold them to the to the Egyptians. He says, if they're going to be so embarrassed of what they did. I don't want my brothers to be embarrassed in front of other people. He went and he says, leave. Everybody leave, I'm alone. And he was putting himself at risk over there. His brothers at that point in time were not buddy-buddy with Yosef. They thought there was a ruler who just wanted to cause him problems. They were ready to take revenge. They were ready to kill him. Says Yosef, I don't care. They're not getting embarrassed in front of these Egyptians. And you know what Yosef goes? And Yosef says, I am Yosef. I am Yosef. He says, my father's still alive. And it says over there, they got, they got shaken, they got scared. Why did they get, they were embarrassed. It was like, oh my gosh. He was right all along. His dreams were correct. Everything was correct with him all along. We were, the, they were so embarrassed. You know what a regular person would have said at that point in time? Who's laughing now, bro? Huh. You said you're not going to be bowed down to me. Well, guess what? You just bowed down to me. Mic drop. You know, like, this, you're, you're, you know, like, this, <laughs> I am the one who's right. You know what Yosef said? He was like, Hey brothers, don't worry. It's not your fault. God sent me here. It says, (laughs) Don't be sad. God, you know he was in jail for over ten years and he's saying over there, Hey brothers, don't worry. It's not your fault. God sent me over here so I could be over here. Where did he get this power from? Where did he have this ability to stand up to his brothers, to not embarrass his brothers in public? Where did he do that from? The answer is very simple. From his mother. His mother was Rachel. Her mother sacrificed everything for her sister not to get embarrassed. There's something called spiritual DNA. If you have a test in your life, and a difficult test, and you pass it, guess what? That passes and trickles down to your children. You're going, and, you know, people say, you know, like, okay, listen, you know, I'll listen to English music, I'll dress not modestly when my children are not around, when I'm a different zip code, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, my children, doesn't work that way. Your children, just like there's genetic DNA, there's spiritual DNA. You provide to your children your spiritual DNA. You work on something. You fix something, guess what? That power is going to your child. And we see this by Yosef. But it goes even more. You know, y- Yosef never told Yaakov and Benjamin that he was sold. He never told them that. Listen to the proof of this. After Yaakov passed away, we see this in Genesis chapter 50, the brothers were scared. He says, now, Yosef is going to punish us. Until now, you know, Yaakov was alive. So he wasn't going to hurt us because his father, you know, we're all part of the brothers. But now that his fa- that our father passed away, maybe Yosef is going to take revenge upon us for selling him. So they went and they sent messengers to Yosef. And they said to him, he says, your father commanded us, please forgive your brothers. Now, the Gemara tells us, the Talmudic sages tell us, Yaakov, never did that. Never told him that. Yaakov never told him that. This is a, this is a, you know, a lie for the sake of peace type of information. The brothers made this up because they were afraid that their brother Yosef was going to hurt them. And they lied for the sake of peace. And we know, by the way, you're allowed to lie for the sake of peace. And again, details on this, ask your local Orthodox rabbi. This is why if any wife ever asks her husband, if do I look fat in this dress? Even if you do, he is halachically allowed to say you look hundred percent skinny. You should belong on the anorexic page of whatever. He says, you know, like you're, for shalom for peace, you're allowed to lie. Problem is, people take this way off the grid. But whatever it is, and you know, in that, in that sense, this says the Rambam, says Nachmanides. He says Yaakov Abinu. From here we learn that Yaakov Avinu also didn't know that Yosef was sold out. Why? Because if Yaakov Vinu knew that Yosef was sold by his brothers, of course Yaakov would have spoke to Yosef, Said, so listen, have mercy on your brothers. He would have spoken to them. But he never ever ever spoke to him about it. Why? Because he never knew. He never knew about it. And that's why it says in Genesis chapter 48 verse 1, it says that the messengers had to tell Yosef, hey by the way Yosef, your father is ill. Why did they have to tell him Yosef didn't visit his father? You understand the connection that Yosef had? Yosef lost his mother at the age of seven or eight. He, his brothers were against him. All he had was his father. Finally, after being separated from his father for so many years, he gets to finally meet his father, and he's not going to spend every free second that he has with him? And the answer is no. You know why he didn't want to spend every... Because he was afraid. If he was going to spend... His father's going to start inquiring, how did you actually really get here? Who sold you? How did you get here? He says you were, at one point you were free. how did you get over here? He didn't want to give up his brothers. For that reason, he did it. That's why he had to be told that his father was sick. That is the extent that he went to. And even his brother Binyamin, also, the Ba'amloites in Pashabni goes and brings down that when Binyamin first met Ya, first met Yosef, his their brothers from the same mother and the same father. When they first met Yosef, Yosef had a special book. This book, if you're, it's a mystical book. That if you open this book and you know how to use this book, you can find out any location, like a GPS location, you know, book. You can find out any location on anybody in the world. <clears throat> and Yosef goes and says, Listen, I have this book. He says, You said you're looking for your lost brother. Benyamin did not know that he's talking to Yosef. And he says, You said you're looking for your lost brother? Here is the book. Go search. Where is Yosef? Where is he? So, Benjamin opens the book, does, you know, he goes and he says, listen, my father taught me how to use this book. Benjamin says, he opens the book and he does it, he closes it, opens it up, does it again. Yosef says, what's going on? He says, is it working? He says, no, something's not working. He says, why? What do you see? So, Benjamin tells the viceroy, which is Yosef, he says, I'm doing it. I'm doing it right. But every time I do it, it tells me that my brother is standing right here next to me. And it's only me and you, so it can't be that. So, I did it again and the same result came. And I did it again and the same result came. Says, Yosef, I am your brother. And you know he says, what happened? He says, Yishmaelim sold me to here. He never mentioned that his other brother sold him. He never once mentioned to his to anybody else that his brother sold him. Where did he get that power? You know what a crazy power that is? Being separated from your family for so many years, being put in prison, being put in a foreign land. The first thing that he should say would be like, Aha, (laughs) I got you. You know, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, that's the first thing that any normal person, any regular person would do. But look at Yosef. With the power that he had. Why? Because Rachel. Rachel gave him that power. The power of spiritual DNA. And this answers such an important, such an important lesson that we need to learn. We go... And we start thinking, and we start saying, God, look, I do so much for you. I do so much. Yeah, we all do so much for God, as if God owes us. Right? Look at me, I'm doing so much for you. Where is my blessing? Where is my shidduch? Where is my husband? Where is my wife? Where is my children? Where is my panasah? Where is the health? Where is everything? We go and we complain. And we go and we sit and we complain and we complain. And we say, look at what we do. Look at what we sacrifice. And God says, don't worry, there is going to be reward to every single thing that you do, you might not see it now, you might not see it in 5 years, you might not see it in 10 years, but I guarantee you at the end, you will see it, and you will realize the power, the blessing of everything that you had, there is not a single prayer that does not go unheard, every single prayer, you could think that you're praying for something, time and time again, and it doesn't get answered, guess what, it's going to get answered, But we don't know how it's going to get answered. Everything, everything has a power. We see that with Rachel. The craziest, the craziest idea. That after everything that she gave up, she didn't see her answer only until after she passed away. And then, oh, what an answer she got. What an answer. She has the strongest power. She was able to save everybody. Everybody in her merit. Nobody else was able to come close to Rachel because of what she did. Now, if you guys give me a few more minutes there's some lessons that we could learn for Lavan, and we'll finish with this. Lavan, <clears throat> he was a trickster. And not only that, he was such a slimy sleazebag of a trickster, that he went, and he even deceived his own people. Now, what happened was, when Yaakov went into this, you know, to this place, there was a big boulder on the well. And why was there a bit, why was there something covering the well? Because there was a shortage of water. So they didn't want one shepherd to come in and take all the water for everybody. So what they did was is that they made sure they put something really, really heavy, that all the shepherds had to come together, lift the boulder, and then they would all be able to share the water equally. But all of a sudden Yaakov comes and the water was flowing freely. There was a blessing. There's no... When you have a righteous person, there's a blessing in the land. And Yaakov being the righteous person came and there was a blessing in the land. Yet Lavan goes to his... He gathers a town hall meeting. He gathers everybody. He says, listen guys. He says, we all know when Yaakov came, our water situation, the problem that it went away. He says, we all want him to stay. I have a plan, but I have to make sure you're all in on it. He says, listen... I'm gonna make it. He's gonna to want to marry my my daughter's my daughter. But what I'll do is I'll make him work seven years, and then we'll make a wedding. He says, "But I need your involvement in it." And each one says, "You each have to give me a deposit." So he went and he collected deposits from each and every single one of them. And what did he do with that deposit? That's the deposit that he went and he made his wedding from. That he didn't even spend a dime out of it. This, you know. Fraudster. He went. He, everybody else was. Like, it's, it's like listen. You wanted to get married, no? That's why it says in the pasuk, Lavan et He gathered all the people of the land, and he made a he made a party. What do you mean he gathered all the people? It means just that everybody paid for their own. Everybody went, and they paid. This one donated the meat. This one donated the wine. This one donated the salad. This one the wine. Everybody donated something. He didn't have to put a dime out of his pocket. Now what happened is this is something that people don't uh, you don't know know. an interesting midrash is. When the wedding night came, they all sang a song. The song was Hilah. Hila, 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 That's what they used to say. They sang, and you know, Yaakov heard this and it was like, okay, that's an interesting song. But what were they singing? Hila? if you separate it, it says he lea. But they slurred the words together, singing like La la la, Hila, la 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 hila. La. You know, what were they saying? They were saying Hila, meaning this is Leah that you're marrying. They were they were putting like a sort of like a safe place for them. That if Yaakov comes in and says, hey, you guys cheated me. I was with i be like, we told you. What do you think the song that we were singing the whole time? We were singing the whole time. He leah. It's leah. You know, it's leah. It's leah. We were singing it the whole time. It's not our fault that you didn't listen to our songs. But they slurred the words. This is something that people tend to justify their actions. When you know that you're doing something wrong, but somehow you say like, okay, well, technically I'm just borrowing this money from this person's purse, so, you know, like, it's we justify our... They were justifying their actions. A lesson that you learn, when something is wrong, it's wrong. If you're going to do it anyway, whatever it is, you know, may God have mercy on your soul, but if you're going to do it anyways... At least realize and understand you're doing something wrong. Don't be justifying just like the people in the town of of Lavan. They went and they went and justified it. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. I'm going to give you three lessons. Lesson number two in Genesis chapter 29, verse 26 and 27. There it goes and says that Yaakov goes and says, Hey listen, what are you doing? He says, You promised me Al Khal, and now you give me Leah. And what did Lavan says? It's not the way of our land. This is the way that we do it. And you know what Lavan said? Lavan says, Okay, listen, you work for me another seven years, Nalach, and we we will give you. Meaning what? We. As we're a collective community. I'm sorry, this is all that we do together. We'll give you the other daughter if you follow the procedure. Lavan said, We, as if it's not his problem, it's the community. <laughs> it's not me. You know, this is what we do. The, you know, how many times do we hear, you know, in life that we tell ourselves, everybody does this. You know, everybody speaks like this. Everybody works like this. Everybody talks like this. Everybody dresses like this. Well, you know, like we think that okay, we're all in it together, so then it's okay. So then it's fine. We could all, you know, whatever. You know, like it's fine. It's not such a big problem because everybody does it. You ever hear that? Uh, I hear that all the time. Well, everybody does it, and then you hear the same answer. Well, if they jump off of the bridge with you. Be like, maybe, yeah, you know, like, I don't know, like, you know, it sounds like fun. Um, how high is the bridge? Do I have a string attached to my, you know, maybe it's a rubber band. So the idea is, is that, number one, don't justify actions. Number two, just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean that it's right. And this is to each and every single one of us. We all think we have the biggest problems in our life. And everybody else, eh, they don't know what I'm going through. Everybody thinks that we have the biggest issues in our life. And you know what? Everybody does have big issues. And we go through issues and we tell God why? Why are you doing this to me? Like after all that I've been through why do you have to do this to me? And I'm trying to do good and I'm trying to do this and it's still bad things happen. Says God, don't worry. There is reward for everything that happens. You're going through a hardship in life and we all go through hardships in life and we don't have to ever go through any hardships in life. Very good, two to three people. Um, we, go, we, we never have to deal with this. But if we do, we have to realize that there is a purpose. And not only should you step back from your religious observance, go and increase it. Say, God, no, 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 I know that this is a test. I know that there's going to be a reward somewhere. Somewhere this is going to come out. Yesachal Learn our lesson from Rachel. Don't learn like Lavan. Don't be that that sneaky person, that sweet talker. You know, the last thing I want to finish off. Lavan, when when uh, God comes to Lavan, and, and he tells Lavan, when he was chasing Yaakov, and he said, tells him, he says, He He says, when you reach Yaakov, he was chasing Yaakov, and God told him, if you reach Yaakov, don't speak them good or bad. Why not speak them good? What's wrong with Levan speaking them good? And the answer is, if you get a treacherous, sleazy guy like Levan, that speaks good to you, maybe he's gonna convince Yaakov to go back to him. He says, there's more danger to the enemy being kind to you than the enemy being harsh to you. He says, then that's why we see in our day and age, when we look after the enlightenment period, that everybody went and joined, well, you know, Jamal is so nice to me, you know, like, I love him, you know, like, Christina is amazing. You know, God, you don't need, you know, he goes like, the rabbi, you don't know what a great woman she is. I've never met a Jewish woman like, how many Jewish women do you know? You're dating Christina, there's a problem over here, right? How many Jewish people? You're like, no, you don't know, she's a saint. Could be she is, call her Saint Christina, but she's not your saint. You know, like, people go and they start, they fall in what? The gracious, the, the other side. But they're so nice, they're so good. That's great, they could be amazing people, but they're not for you. They're not your soulmate. You as a Jew, have a Jewish soulmate. They have a non-Jewish soulmate. They might convert and they might be your soulmate at one point in time. But right now they're not. And this is not. The enemy is more dangerous when it's nicer than when it's meaner. Says God to Lavan, Don't speak to Yaakov inu, Not good and not bad. The power that we have, to, the, the lessons that you have from Rachel, from Yosef, from Lavan, is mind-blowing. The lesson that I cannot emphasize. And you know what? I read this story of Rachel... So many times. the so many times. For some reason, and I thank God, thank you God, probably in your schut. This time that I read it, this year, I was like, I, I gotta speak. By the way, if you realize, this, I was not, a, this. we should have continued in our other series. I did this because I was reading, I was learning this and I'm like, this is crazy. I have to share this right now. I can't, the lesson here is so amazing, so powerful. It is a strong, if if, if in, my, in my opinion, it's one of the strongest questions that people have against God. I'm, I'm becoming religious, now you're giving me problems? I'm doing all this good, now you're giving me the problems? We don't know. Learn from the story of Rachel. You're gonna get reward for it. There's nothing that you do that's good, that's not gonna go un- unheard, and it's not gonna, it's going to get answered. Every single prayer gets answered. Maybe Hashem we, we take this, and maybe we have the power of Rachel Imenu, to not only go and answer our tfilot, that we shouldn't have any problems, but rather bring us back to Eretz Israel, to return us to our holy land, that we're able to build the, the Betta Mikdash Mehab Imenu, be able to actually greet Rachel Imenu in the time of Triat Ametim. Amen. Any questions? Let's start this way. Okay. Uh, we might get rewarded. I mean, we'll get rewarded, but it could be in the next book, But basically, this means we just to have to suffer. Like, just be okay with suffering. There is. So that's a good question. So that means that if we do something good and we're having a hard time, that we means that we have to suffer. There, in every situation. By the way, that question is so loaded. It's such a loaded question that I could, I could, I, could, I, could, I had a conversation before I before I came to this class today for somebody for about forty-five minutes, and it was about that topic. And I could give you that entire thing for 45, I'm not going to, but I'm going to give for this entire thing in there. But yes, people have to go, and people go through difficulties in life, it doesn't mean that you have to suffer. There's always angles of looking at it. If you realize that God is doing this for a purpose, and Rachel uh, knew that, you know, realize this situation. If you realize that God's doing it for a purpose, and nothing that you do is not going to get unheard of, you're going to be able to live your life, even the suffering part, with a tremendous amount of ease and menuchat and nephesh, uh, that you're able to deal with it. Because if you realize that everything gets answered and everything gets heard, you are going to be able to deal with life's biggest problems very, very easily. Life, I know. We want life to be as easy as And may life be extremely easy for every single the one of us. Yeah, you're right. The is good for you're right. You're right. You're right. You just have to accept the pain. You're right. So it is. You just have to accept everything that's left. There's, you know, you you know, there, you know, there's no, there's no secret easy answer. Yeah. People have problems. We don't want the problems. When the problem comes, we have to realize, yeah, we have to realize we have to deal with it. And it's not easy. It's difficult. It's very difficult sometimes. And trust me, I know, I hear. I, 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 I definitely understand. People go through tremendous amount of difficulties. God doesn't give you a test that you can pass. I mean, I can tell you from today to tomorrow. Really, it's for the ba- at the end of the day, you're going through a hard time. I acknowledge that. I know that. God knows that. We pray and hope. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, the, yeah, this is what we need to do. Someone who's going through chemo. Someone who's going through lost a you know, loved one. It, life-changing events are very difficult. Life is not always balloons and butterflies. Yeah, makes you grow. Next question. Did, um Did Yosef actually ever forgive his brothers? Yes. He said it out loud. Yosef forgave his brothers. How do we know that? Because when Yosef told him, he says, it's not your, he he mentioned them, he says, it's not your fault that you came over here. God wanted me to come over here and look at all the good that I was able to do because I came over here. So he mentioned over there and by that, the Chachamim learned that Yosef forgave his brothers full heartedly. Um, Yeah. wanted to the copy something, wanted to the print something, and he was pressing control, P, control, he P, kept on doing it. You heard this? No, but I can imagine there's 7,000 copies that come and out. And then somebody comes down and he's like, oh my gosh, you've got to stop. There's just so many copies in the whole place. So it's the same thing with Tequila. We're docking it, we we
1: don't see it. But upstairs, it's going somewhere else. Going, go
0: That's amazing. I love that. That's amazing. Any other questions? Any other questions? Okay, Chazakabu.